0: Well, if you keep your Bibles open to uh, Mark chapter 10, if you're new with us, we've been moving through the gospel of Mark text by text, uh, kind of following along with the disciples as they're as they're following Jesus and learning. Uh, I have to say, as I I start this, I just want to say, first of all, that obviously this is a big topic. I'm humbled as I come to speak about it Um, this morning. I won't be able to cover everything. And uh, some of you may be thinking about circumstances that won't be addressed this morning. Feel ha- uh, happy, uh, Be it's fine, I'm happy for you to come to talk to me about that. Uh, also, um, I wanna say that uh, I, our, our former pastor, Paul Reese, preached a wonderful sermon on this years ago and I'm borrowing some from his outline today because it was so good, although there is some uh, difference towards the end especially. Now it's no secret Uh, that over the past century there has been a dramatic kind of degradation of the institution of marriage in this country. It has gone from an institution that was held up as God-ordained and sacred and valuable, the most solemn commitment two people could make, the very backbone of family life and a healthy society, to something that today is often treated with a very laissez-faire attitude. Almost trivial. You see this uh, in, in wedding ceremonies and how people start their marriages today. I mean, you can get married at a drive through in Vegas. You uh, can get married with your, you know, buddy who just went and got his pre-certificate online. You, uh, a lot of people get married at the, and it's all about the, the destination wedding, you know, flying to, to the mountaintop or to the ocean. And it's really much more about the experience of that moment than it is about the sacred covenant they're making. How people start something is is reflective a lot of what they think of it. And things have gotten so trivial with marriage that we have reality television shows where people, you know, go on dates, you know, uh, episode after episode with a different person to try to find that special mate, the one to marry, if if that's real and going to last at all. But it's so exciting. Everybody likes to watch If it doesn't work out, it's no big deal, right? They can get married, it doesn't work out, they can divorce. Which brings me to the the corresponding issue of the decline of marriage, and that's the rise of divorce. Many people today who go into marriage in a very trivial way also get out in just as easy or trivial as a fashion. They get a no-fault divorce for any reason they want, and if they're smart, they had a prenup, and uh, many marriages, unfortunately, end this way as trivial as they started. The, the stats are interesting over the past 100 years. In 1910, it was 1 in 10 marriages that ended in divorce. In 1920, it was 1 in 7. In 1940, 1 in 6. By 1960, it was 1 in 4. 1970, 1 in 3. And then we hit 2000. One and two. Now I have to say uh, the stat that you always hear that it's exactly the same for Christians the divorce rate that's not true actually. Uh, the stats show that if you are a serious practitioner of your of your faith whether it's Catholicism or Judaism or Christianity uh, it's about you're about thirty one to fifty percent less likely to divorce. But on a whole divorce has become very common affecting about fifty percent of marriage. So marriage. When, it, when it's romanticized and it's all about feelings, or utilized for, for self-gratification, ultimately it's trivialized. And thus we see divorce in great numbers. But what we need to remember is that the results of divorce are anything but trivial. Uniting with someone and then dividing, splitting, never happens without Scars and torn relationships never happens without mental anguish, and emotional, spiritual trauma. Never happens without broken families and devastated children. And all you have to do is look at the long-term studies, and you will see that. And the thing is, the truth is, I don't have to give stats to back this up, because so many of us know this reality very personally. Whether it was a, the brokenness, brokenness in, our, in our parents' marriage or the brokenness of our own marriage or our children's marriage or someone close to us, we know this pain. We know the relational trauma. We felt the anger and the regret and perhaps the guilt. And because of this, I know that there are many listening today with sensitive hearts, and ears, processing everything through your own personal experience. And and let me just say, me too. My wife is a divorcee, and dealing with the effects of that have been very real in our marriage. I have family members that have gone through this, and as a pastor, I've dealt with the messiness and pain of broken marriages on too many occasions. So I don't come to teach on this today in any dogmatic or judgmental way. I come walking alongside you. I come to sit under God's word with you. Which, as we will see, is actually incredibly real and hopeful and gracious. It's it's real because... As Jesus calls his disciples on the road to follow him to the cross, that road of discipleship, look what is the first things they run into. This text is on marriage and divorce. The next text is on children. The next text is on wealth, marriage, family, money. It couldn't, that covers it, doesn't it? I mean, that's about it. Jesus speaks to real life in a real broken world but it's not just real it's full of grace because this journey that they are on with him this journey of discipleship which takes them through these things takes them ultimately to the cross the place where Jesus will give his life to bring healing so let's take a look look at verse 1 with me and he left there and went into the region of Judea And beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So here we have immediately the context and really the motive for this question about divorce. And it's anything but neutral. Why are the Pharisees asking Jesus about divorce? What's it say? To test him. They're not coming because they've got some issue and they really want to know. No, they know what they think is the answer. They just want to test. The idea is to entrap him, to trip him up. It's the same word used of Satan when he was trying to test Jesus in the wilderness. They want to trip him up. They want to entrap him. How? How might they entrap him with his answer on divorce? Well, note that Mark has just mentioned that they've just moved into the area of uh, Judea, this jurisdiction of Herod Antipas, the king—well, at least the self-declared king—who recently divorced his wife to marry was his brother's sister or wife. I'm trying to remember this. And what happened to John the Baptist when John the Baptist confronted him about it? He had his head handed to him on a platter, didn't he? You see, they, they want Jesus to make a statement about this because they want Herod to do their dirty work for them. They want Jesus destroyed. But Jesus doesn't seem too worried about it. And he answers their question with a question. Look at verse 3. He answered them, what did Moses command you? He goes straight to the scriptures. And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote to you this commandment. You see, the first part of Jesus' answer to them about divorce is simply that divorce is rooted in hard Hardness. They say, oh, he said we could do a a certificate of divorce. And he says, yep, he did. But that is rooted in hard-heartedness. It wasn't God's intention. It's not what he wants, but he's allowed a concession because of hard hearts. You see, the Jews, even back in Moses' day, were experiencing broken marriages. In Genesis 24, which is the text that's being referenced here, Men, the Jewish men, were apparently separating from their wives over what what, uh, Moses calls indecency, which seems to be some kind of uh, immodest or or sexual uh, indiscretion. And thus men were leaving their wives on that terms and, and splitting up. But the result was they were leaving their wives destitute because they were just walking away. And the wife was still considered married to them, so she couldn't remarry. It was the only way to be taken care of then, and they were being neglected, with no one to marry, no one to look after them. So, and they didn't have any document to say they were released from that marriage. So Moses commanded that they should be given; they should give a certificate of divorce to allow them to to remarry and be cared for. It was a concession of grace when a marriage had already broken down to protect the vulnerable party, which were the wives. But here's the shocking thing, is that by Jesus' day, the rabbis had taken that term indecency and stretched it to be a catch-all word for anything a man didn't like about his wife. The most popular rabbi of the day whose teaching kind of won the day was Rabbi Hillel. And he said the word basically meant for any cause. And and his example that he gave was even uh, the ruining of a meal. Cooks a bad meal, that's indecent, writer's certificate of divorce. Another rabbi of that time said that even if a man found a woman fairer than she, in other words, he finds a younger prettier woman, so his wife doesn't seem so great to him anymore. He can call that indecent, and then he can replace her. And they thought this was a good thing, like, 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 like it was God's intention for, for their happiness to be able to just write a certificate and then send her away. That's why they said that to Jesus. They had turned this gracious restriction on divorce for the protection of the wife into a license for selfishness and abandonment. If things weren't good in your marriage because you had lost interest or felt incompatible, you could void the contract, write a certificate, and look for someone better to fulfill you because God wouldn't want you to be unhappy. Huh, does that sound familiar? It's exactly where we're at at today with our low view of marriage and no-fault divorce. It's crazy. You go back thousands of years to Judea and you find yourself in America, in Spokane. People treating marriage as a means of self-gratification and thus having a commitment about as deep as their feelings of the moment. And and you kind of think, wouldn't it be different? You think naturally, oh no, you go back in the past and they're going to be really strong. And today it's gotten so bad. But you look across the millennia and it's, no, it's the same. Why? Why is there nothing new when it comes to marital brokenness and divorce? Because where is it rooted? Where does he say? It's rooted in hard-heartedness which goes across the centuries. It goes all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? It's not something new. It goes back to the very first marriage that we read about, that one that was so perfect. The one of honesty and intimacy between Adam and Eve, where they were naked and not ashamed until they chose to sin against God. This relationship was broken first. The first divorce, right here. And then these these relationships began to fall apart in mistrust and blame and guilt. Divorce is just the outworking of our sin against God at the most intimate relational level. And the thing is, we all experience it at some level in our own marriages. You know, our marriages start with such beauty, and promise. We marry that perfect person that looks so good and acts so sweet and we like how they smell. We chose them because they are the special one. And then we have to live together. And we begin to struggle with each other in our sin. And it's hard. And sometimes, if it goes unchecked, things can happen that are so egregious to the marriage that it's irreparably broken. Or perhaps one partner just walks off looking for the fairer one, striving for some sense of fulfillment, which they will never find. I'll never forget one of my friends in college. He got a phone call from his dad. This is back in the days when the college phone was in the hall, the one phone with the long cord, and everybody got to hear your conversation. And I could hear him out there say, Oh, hey, Dad. Oh, hey, how's it going? What? oh, 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 yeah, oh, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll try to make it. Yeah, I don't know if I can, though, and he got off the phone, he hung up, and he started hanging his head, and I said, what's up? He said, oh, my, my dad's getting married. And I said, what, Are you, you're not going to go? He goes, well, it's, it's the fifth time. He goes, he keeps thinking he's going to find something. Divorce reveals the issue right here. And thus it can only be reconciled and redeemed with something that can deal with this. So hold that for a minute, and let's consider the second thing that Jesus says about divorce here. And that is, I'll just state it as a title, he says, it strikes at the very essence of marriage. It's not only rooted in hard-heartedness, it strikes at the very essence of marriage. Look at verse 5 with me. This is what it says. And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. Although God allows and allows divorce, it's not what he wanted and designed and built us for from the very beginning. We were created from the start, he says, male and female, equally reflecting and represented in the image of God. Not one lesser or one put down or one dominated or one left out, but together of equal dignity revealing God. This is why God says, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, as male and female, we demonstrate our communal Trinitarian God who is a united community in his very nature and this union as husband of wife uh, when they come together is a beautiful picture of God's unity within himself and Christ's unity with the church as we come together one in covenant promise to each other in faithfulness one in relationship selflessly serving each other one in the flesh in our sexual union we demonstrate the selfless unity of our God That is what our marriages are about and what they do in their very essence. As these two others, male and female, come together, we we show God and we're helped to know God. This is why marriage is considered sacred and and holy. And our world will never get this. they will never understand. When it's just about romantic love and my expression of it, or if it's just about self-fulfillment and a sense of happiness, it's missing the mark, the very meaning of marriage. If it's just about being you know, completed by another person, it's missing the mark. And if that's what it's about, then it's no big deal to divorce, especially if you don't feel happy or fulfilled. And if that's what it's about, it doesn't really matter whether it's two men or two women. If it's only, expression, if it's only an expression of, of your love and fulfillment, but it's not about that. It's about two others, male and female, and all their divine complementary differences uniting as one to display the very essence of God. And it's sealed by God himself. Look at verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. God makes this union. He seals this. And let me say what this is not saying. This is not saying that as they come together, there's this ontological union where they're changed in very essence and they become so that can never be taken apart. No, it's a covenantal statement. It's a statement about this promise, this covenant made by God, which he puts his stamp on and seals, and nobody can undo but him. This is why marriage should never be treated as trivial and divorce must be considered very serious. It's why Jesus says to his disciples as they ask him to clarify his strong teaching, these words in verse 11. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now he's not saying that there's absolutely no exceptions, that all divorce causes adultery. We know this as we read on in Scripture, which we're going to look at in a minute, but he is saying that this kind of divorce, this trivial divorce for whatever you want, if it makes you feel good, he doesn't recognize for a second. He's not let them out of their marital covenant, which is his prerogative, And thus, they are just living in repeated adultery. Now, I realize as I say this, as I try to lift up the seriousness and the sanctity of marriage, that I run the risk of kind of piling on uh, guilt and shame and a sense of failure on all those who have experienced the brokenness of divorce or, or, or maybe struggling with it now. And let me say, that is not what this is about. We are all broken. We all have sinful hearts that have been divorced us. They have divorced us from our God. We're all divorcees in that sense. Thus, an unbroken marital record doesn't give you a one-up on anybody. He went to the cross for all of us to forgive us all. And we will all be restored into right relationship with him and each other. Which brings me to my my last point, which is pretty encouraging as well. And that is, divorce is a grace. God's concession for divorce is a grace. Yes, divorce comes out of hardened sinful hearts and goes against the very essence of God's intent for marriage. Yes, God in his mercy has, I'd say, yet God in his mercy has made and allowed for a concession to offer grace to these broken lives. That's what was going on back in Genesis 24, right? When the husbands in their hardened, with their hardened hearts were walking away from their marriages, leaving their wives destitute and unprotected, and he commanded them to give a certificate of divorce to protect the vulnerable party. He's making that concession out of grace, and he makes similar concessions today because man's heart hasn't changed. In this text, we see no concession because he's speaking into the context of trivial divorce. But in Matthew 5.32 and 9.19, He makes a concession for adultery, doesn't he? He says when someone has sinned against that one flesh union of their marriage, that physical marker of their covenant by by committing adultery, the offended spouse is released, free to remarry. They don't have to leave, especially if their spouse is repentant. They should try to work on their marriage. Marriage is that important. Try to make things right. Try to reconcile. But they are allowed to leave if they need to, to protect them from the trauma and abuse that can come from being bound to an adulterous partner, especially an unrepentant one. In 1 Corinthians 7, The Apostle Paul makes it clear that a person may pursue divorce if they are abandoned by an unbelieving spouse, if they are deserted. He says they're under no obligation to try to hold on to that marriage, to try to hold that person in. He says, for the sake of peace, let them go. They've left the marriage, they've destroyed its unity, breaking the promise, and the offended party is released unbound from the marriage as if that spouse who's gone away has actually passed away. They aren't stuck married to this person who's deserted them. They are freed and can remarry. And then there's another concession, and that's the situation of abuse. Now, many in the church would say that there's no clear concession for divorce in scripture for cases of abuse that it just doesn't say anything about it but in 1 corinthians 7 15 where paul is making his argument for desertion as a concession he says this in such cases a person is not bound in such cases and the greek phrase there i think has been shown pretty definitively to mean in similar cases, in cases like these. Wayne Grudem has really shown that. In situations that cause similar damage to a marriage that abandonment does, the offended spouse is released, freed from that marriage. What causes similar damage to a marriage as abandonment? How about when a spouse is mentally or physically or emotionally abused to the extent that they feel they need to flee from their own home. Such cases can be even worse than mere abandonment because abuse goes beyond an indifference that walks away to repeated relational injury that stays active, ongoing, malice, and violence. And the result is the same. The couple is no longer together, their unity is broken, the marriage. Has been deserted. Yes, our God hates divorce, but He loves His children more, and He will not let the sacred marital union be a place of adultery or abandonment or abuse that mocks its very essence and destroys the vulnerable. So, in grace, He allows for divorce in those situations to protect and love His people. Okay, so how do we apply all of this? Well, first of all, as Christians, we need to have a high view of marriage. We must remember that it is rooted in, in creation order, and it reflects the very essence of our God and is meant to demonstrate to the world the unity of Christ and his people. And we must not get caught up in the, the kind of trivial, laissez-faire attitudes about marriage and divorce that are everywhere, all around us. We must be absolutely committed to our marriages from the start. We must look at them as commitments for life. So I want to say to the, the younger people, and I don't care how young you are, because I'm assuming you're maybe thinking about getting married someday, you have to get the, the media bachelor, bachelorette view of marriage out of your head, where it's all about finding that special one that fulfills you or that romantic rush, that person that likes, you know, boarding and board games and, and uh, walking on the beach just like you. Your perfect match. Because let me tell you, that will wear off and there will be days when you can't stand the sight of their perfect little face. And you'll be on that long walk alone, fuming. And it won't be long before you'll be looking for that new special one. And so will they. No, you need to remember that marriage is way bigger than the two of you. That it's, not, that it's about honoring God. And thus, your commitment to it has to be beyond momentary feelings that are going on between you. You need to be looking for that real Christian, not the person who ticks the Christian box or the one who plays one on Sunday, but that real believer who's committed to honoring God first even before they're committed to honoring you. That real Christian has a view of marriage and the institution of marriage that they hold up even before their feelings towards you. And it's this commitment that will make something real and lasting this way in your marriage. It's this commitment that you each have to honoring God first in this marriage that will make it work this way and bring a depth of relationship that will endure through struggle and even have a growth that is beautiful rather than fading. Don't compromise, that's what I would say. Hold out for the real thing, that real Christian, so you can have that God-glorifying marriage. And by the way, be the real thing, so that person can find you. And married people, we need to have a high view of marriage as well, and that means we need to hold our marriages high, high in our minds, high in our hearts, high in our priorities. It means we will work at our marriages. We will strive at honoring and serving our spouses will be committed to fostering honesty and forgiveness and repentance and trust, all those things that build a relationship. We'll be committed to doing the practical things to make that happen, like praying with each other, or taking the time for each other, listening to each other, studying the scriptures, going to church, having mentors in our lives. I have to say, quite often when couples end up in my office because their marriage has broken down. They're never at the point where they're saying, you know, Carrie, things have been going okay, but we just wanted to come in and see you. No, by the time they come to see me, they are done. They're at the end of themselves or the end of each other. And I usually ask them, so what have you done to build up your marriage over the years? They tend to look at their feet. There's silence. Paul Tripp has this great illustration for marriage. He says, it's like when you buy a brand new home when you get married. You get that brand new home, let's say. looks so good and beautiful. Everything's perfect about it. You get busy. You're going about life. You're raising the kids, going to work. You know, years pass. One day you drive in the driveway and you look at that house. And, you know, the shutter's falling off and the paint is peeling away. And you say, what happened? And the answer is, nothing happened. You did nothing. You neglected it and here it is, falling apart. The disciples are on the road of discipleship with Jesus and one of the first things they learn is that a follower of Christ cannot have a laissez-faire attitude towards marriage. They must hold it high. They must be committed. They must work at it. And let me say, there are lots of great resources. There's a book I have called What Did You Expect by Paul Tripp, which has these great uh, chapters to go through about maintaining and building your marriage. Now, the second application that comes out of this passage that we, is that not only do we need to have a high view of marriage, but we need to have a realistic view of sin and brokenness. We need to remember that, that we do have hardened hearts and be honest about our sin and our brokenness. Not only will this motivate us in our marital work, but it will give us understanding and grace when marriages break down. God gives his concession because in the hardness of our hearts, our marriages can sometimes be irreparably, irreparably broken. Even when there's forgiveness, even when there's forgiveness, they can be so broken. I like to use the illustration of I could go out and let's say I got drunk and I got in a car and I hit you and you were paralyzed. You can forgive me, but you're still not walking. It's not coming back. The damage that can be done to a marriage and to the trust can destroy that covenant and that bond, even when there's forgiveness. Thus, God offers release from the covenant. Man cannot separate a marriage, but God can, and he does out of his grace. He's given his concessions that there can be protection and healing And Christians, we need to accept the reality of the brokenness and sinful damage that can happen in a marriage and extend that same grace. Maybe you need to do it for yourself. Perhaps you left an abusive situation years ago and you've always felt guilty and ashamed. I've heard Christians tell me they feel like they have a scarlet D on their chest, especially when they come to church. Let me just say, God sees, he knows, and he has opened the way out. Receive his grace. Perhaps you are in an adulterous or abusive situation right now. Let me ask you, what wisdom or virtue is there in staying in such a situation and suffering silently? How does that help you? How does that help them? And wives if somehow this abuse is being justified in the name of headship and submission and being a good Christian spouse, that is a lie. If that's going on for you, you need to come and see me or talk to one of our elders because there needs to either be repentance and restoration or we will help you out, help you receive God's grace of concession. Perhaps you need to extend this grace to others. Maybe you've been judgmental over a friend's divorce or a parent's divorce. I know it can be very complicated and sometimes there's much sin on both sides, but our God is gracious and we need to be as well. And that brings me to the last point of application. Not only do we need to have a high view of marriage and a realistic view of sin and brokenness, we also need always to keep the cross in view. In our own marriages, as we, as we fail and we struggle with our sin and the sin of our partner, we need to deal with each other with the cross in view. We need to remember that all has been forgiven of us and we need to treat each other with the same grace. And when it comes to divorce in our lives or others, I don't care what the circumstance is, it's not unforgivable. I don't even care if you think you were the one at fault, It's not unforgivable even if it's felt that way remember the woman at the well Jesus approaches her how many times she's been married five times and then uh, the man she's with now is not her husband she's just given up on the institution of marriage it's just been so bad And Jesus offers her living water to eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful grace of marriage, this wonderful institution that you designed into the very creation order to bless us, that we may know each other and know you more fully. But Lord, we also thank you for the grace of of concession, of recognizing our brokenness and our sinfulness, and giving means to be unbound, that there can be healing. Help us, Lord, to, to receive both those graces and extend that grace to each other. We pray these things in your son's name, amen.